Happy Thanksgiving! You're listening to Gospel in Life. Today we're listening to the second sermon in a seven-part series on generosity. There are many ways God calls us to be generous, and today Tim Keller teaches us what the Bible says about being generous in our relationships. Now, here's Dr. Keller with today's teaching. The scripture reading is from Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 10. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times he comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is God's word. So we've begun a series on uh, looking at texts in the Gospel of Luke on the subject of generosity. As we said last week, as soon as you hear the word generosity, you say, oh, a series on money. Uh, No, not necessarily, because even though, of course, according to the Bible, generosity is not less than financial giving, but it's a lot more. It is possible to be technically generous with your money, And not at all radically generous, not at all generous in your spirit or in your heart. It is quite possible to give your money away in pretty great proportions, but for profoundly selfish reasons. If you need to be needed, if you want to be thought generous, if you want to think of yourself as generous, uh, there's all sorts of reasons why you might give your money generously, but you'll be controlling There'll be strings attached. To be radically generous, generous down to the root of your heart, means you will be pervasively generous. That is, you will be uh, characterized by a spirit of unselfish service in every single area of life, every area. Not only because, uh, not only in the area of money. So we've talked about this. There are more than one kinds of currency. We mentioned this last week too. It's a premise for the whole series. Uh, what is a currency? A currency is a medium for exchanging value. And when you think, when you hear the word currency, right away you think of money. But there's more than one currency. So, for example, if you say, oh, "I'll write a check," you know, I'll give the money, but I don't want to get emotionally involved with that person or those people. I don't want to get. I, I mean, it's just too draining. Well, what that means is your emotional space is actually more valuable to you than your money. And maybe you're actually not being radically generous. Or you might, sometimes people will say, well, I'd be happy to write a check, but I don't want to to spend the time because my time is my own and my privacy is important to me. In other words, that's more valuable to you than your money. And by giving your money and not that means, in a sense, you're not being radically generous. But So there's different currencies. But the one we want to talk about tonight and start in on right now is what I'm calling relational generosity. There are plenty of people who are actually quite generous with their money, 
pretty generous with their time. They volunteer their time. They help. They're charitable. Yet they're not relationally generous at all. What does it mean to be relationally generous? Well, a perfect example in the Bible is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus has said to all of his disciples, this is the hour of my greatest need. All I'm asking is that you would just simply stay awake and pray with me. And they fall asleep. And when they wake up, he looks at them, and what does he say? He says, I can't believe... No, what he says is, (laughs) the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, on the one hand, he's saying, you're weak, you've... You let me down. He's not, you know, he's not whitewashing them. But on the other hand, what does he say? The spirit is willing. What does he mean? He's finding some way to give them some credit. He's saying, well, I know you meant well. There are plenty of people who are generous in certain ways, but you are not generous on the inside, and you know who you are. You look around at people, and you disdain people, and you say, oh, that person, eh, woo, woo, that, forget, you just criticize them, you're exacting, you're absolutely, completely ungenerous relationally. You're not giving people the credit, giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're completely unre- uh, ungenerous. Now, that's general relational generosity, but there's a specific form of relational generosity that we want to talk about because it's something that must characterize all Christian believers, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness, yes, because There are people out there who relationally owe you. They owe you because of how they've treated you. They owe you. And you might hold that over them. You might be more demanding of them. Or you might even just keep it inside and just hold it against them. But that's not being generous. Because to be generous means you release. You let it go. You forgive. Let's talk about that because one of the most important characteristics of Christians. uh, And that is... Forgiveness. Let's notice from this classic passage, it's, it's parallel to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and uh, Luke 17 are parallel passages in many ways, and they are masterful passages that talk a lot about what it means to forgive. And let's notice what it teaches us here about the enormity of forgiveness, and then the practice of it, exactly how you do it, and then the key to forgiveness, the only way you will actually ever do it. There's the enormity of it, the practice of it, and the key to it. First, the enormity of it. You notice when Jesus starts talking about forgiveness, his disciples say in verse 5, increase our faith, which is another way of saying, oh my, we could never do that. See, the enormity of it. What is it that Jesus has just said? First of all, let's notice the enormity of the challenge. Because in verse 4, he says, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day, and comes back and says to you, I repent, you must forgive. Now, we can get pretty sidetracked here a little bit because the, 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 the number seven was symbolic to ancient Jewish people. It was symbolic, and that's why you have to understand it's actually, uh, because it's symbolic, Jesus didn't say if they come twice in a day or five times, he said seven. The word seven is, I mean, pardon me, the number seven, as you know, probably, is it was a complete number. It was a number that meant completeness, fullness, perfection, uh, no more possible. So if you, if some Middle Eastern, you know, uh, potentate invited you and says, ah, come to uh, my feast, may you eat seven fish. He's really not saying, I want you to eat seven fish or there's seven courses of fish. What he's actually saying is, may you fill up May you eat until you can have no more. See, seven is the perfect number beyond which no more is possible. So when Jesus says, 
If someone comes to you seven times in a day and asks forgiveness, you must forgive them. You could get sidetracked because you realize literally that's not real likely. Because if somebody really repents, he says, he says, if a person comes seven times and wrongs you and seven times says, I'm sorry, really repents, you must forgive. By the sixth time, you're going to say, you're not sorry or you wouldn't be doing this. I mean, and you can get sidetracked, but Jesus isn't talking like that. Here's what he's saying, and it's worse than you think. When he says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, in one day, he's saying something worse than you think. Somebody put it like this. This is really what he's saying. He is saying, if a person would wrong you as completely and as fully as any person could wrong another human being, you must forgive him. Imagine the worst thing that anybody could possibly do to you. And, of course, that means all of us are going to be somewhat imagining different things because we're different. But imagine the worst thing, something so bad, nothing beyond it is possible. And Jesus says, if you're my disciple and someone wrongs you like that, you have to forgive them. No wonder the disciple said, increase our faith, which is another way of saying, it's a nice way of saying, we're, that's impossible. We, we, some super spiritual person might do it if you want to miraculously increase our faith, but there's, that's impossible. So the enormity of the challenge, but I also want you to see that we can't shrink from the enormity of the challenge. We can't say it's ridiculous. That's, that's superhuman. That's what they're saying. It's a superhuman standard. We can't shrink from the enormity of the challenge because of the enormity of the danger. And there's a little phrase here that, that almost goes by unless you realize what Jesus is saying. Notice how in verse 3 he says, so watch yourselves. If your brother sins, even seven times you must forgive him. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, if someone hurts you and harms you, watch yourself. Watch yourself very closely. Well, see, that's not what usually happens. <laughs> if someone wrongs us, we pay a great deal of attention to that person. Why did you do that? Jesus says, immediately when someone wrongs you, you should say, you should pay a lot of attention to your own self and your heart. And you know why? Uh, David Bisgrove gave me this little example. There's so many we could, we could mention. A little example, did you know that Tolstoy uh, uh, married Sonia? Tolstoy was the great, Roman, uh, great uh, Russian uh, uh, writer. And, and uh, before he married Sonia, he let, he let her read his diaries. And that included some of his sexual dalliances that he'd had with women before he met her and before uh, they got married. And when she was 80 years old, she was writing in her own journal very, very bitterly about his, you know, how much he loved these women. And one, of his, one historian put it like this. this is, when she was 80 years old, she was still writing about what she had read years before. And this historian said, For half a century, jealousy and unforgiveness blinded her and in the process destroyed all love for her husband. Hebrews 12:15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many have been defiled. Just what Jesus says. When someone wrongs you, watch yourself. Hebrews 12:15 says, if you find, Watch out when someone wrongs you, because if you stay angry at them, and see, anger will always uh, tell you it's not anger. Anger will always say, you just, I just want justice. Or anger will always say, uh, I just... Um, you know, it'll, it'll tell you something. I, I, just, I just want the truth. Or, uh, but if you keep anger, if you hold on to anger, it will defile you, it says in Hebrews twelve fifteen. Let me give you a little quick uh, word study. 
four English words, all derived from the same old English Anglo-Saxon root. Wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. What does wrath mean, class? And the answer is, oh, it's, that's a somewhat older word for anger, right? Yeah, okay, that's not all it means. Why? Because if you go to the word wreath, what's a wreath? A wreath is a set of branches or flowers or whatever has been twisted into a shape. What does the word writhe mean? It means to twist. And now you begin to realize, wait a minute, wrath means then not just to be angry, but to be twisted and distorted by anger. And what does the word wraith mean? That's, that's probably a word you might be the least familiar with, but it's, a, it's an old word for a ghost and a particular kind of ghost. A wraith was a ghost who had been wronged and after death is doomed to relive what the person had done to them. They go back and they have to haunt the area and they're restless for, the, for eternity, as it were. And that's how the story goes. And they have to relive because they have never been able to forgive. And therefore, now their eternity and their future is completely controlled by the past. When you kid yourself that you're not being twisted by anger, if you stay angry at people, if you stay mad at them, if you hold a grudge, if you stay resentful, if you don't forgive, you don't forgive deeply, you will be distorted and twisted by the anger. You will become a less joyful person. You will become a person who is inordinately afraid of trusting other people. I mean, not just the normal rightful kind of careful. You don't want to be naive. You don't want to be clueless. Obviously, you can't just trust anybody. You need to look. But what happens is if you let anger in there and keep staying there, you will be inordinately afraid of trusting people. You'll become a hard, exacting person. It's terrible. The de- Watch yourself. Someone wrongs you. High alert. Watch your heart. Do you do that? I don't do that. Do you do that? No, you don't either. And therefore, because of the enormity of the danger, we cannot shrink from the enormity of the challenge. Point two, how do we do it now? What is the practice of forgiveness? And actually, some of you might right off the bat say the whole idea of forgiveness being a practice seems a little weird because we live in a psychological era. We live in a psychologized, a heavily psychologized culture in which feelings are the most important thing by far. And what that means is people say, well, if I'm, having, if I'm mad at somebody, I can't forgive them because I'm still angry at them. I don't know what to do about that. I can't do anything about that. Yes, you can. According to the Bible, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. It's practiced before it's felt. And there's three things you can do and you must do if you're going to avoid becoming a wraith. That's actually, I mean, uh, inside the bounds of Christian theology, since we believe after you die, you go on forever in one form or another, it's not too far from the truth. So, consider this. Three things. And they're all here. That's why this is such a, a classic passage. The first thing you must do if you want to forgive somebody, and you should want to forgive somebody, is the first thing is you must refuse to caricature the wrongdoer and instead identify with them. Don't caricature them. Identify with them. Now, Jesus, because every every by the way, every passage. Did I do? Every this. What is the guilty? Uh, There's so many little knobs. Which one was guilty? 
Which one was the perpetrating knob? Okay, got it. Um, if, uh, if someone wrongs you, the very first thing you do is tend to emphasize the discontinuities. Jesus, by even bringing out the fact, he says, if your brother or sister, if your brother sins, rebuke him. He's reminding you. Now, he's talking about Christians wronging Christians. So what he's saying is if someone wrongs you, remember, that's a brother. That's a sister. You have a common family. Don't talk about the discontinuities. See what you have in common. But the Bible doesn't simply say you only have to um, forgive people who are believers. If you're a Christian, you only have to forgive other Christians. Not at all. Because in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. Oh, hear that? As you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. So it's, it's not just Christians, but the principle's the same. If you want to forgive somebody, you must stress what you have in common. And you say, well, what if the person doesn't believe Christianity? Fine. In that case, you don't necessarily look at the fact that you're in the same, the common family, but you are in this, in the common humanity. And for you to remind yourself that the other person who has wronged you, uh, that you share common humanity, is to remind yourself of two things. Miroslav Volf puts them perfectly in a little uh, booklet he wrote some years ago on forgiveness. And in it he says, forgiveness flounders. Forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. There it is. There's two ways you must remind yourself that you are the same as the person who wronged you, and that is a major step toward being able to forgive them. The first is you have to remind that you're both sinners. Don't exclude yourself from the community of sinners. It is impossible to stay angry at somebody unless you feel a little superior to them. If someone's wronged you and you're really mad, it's because inside you're saying, I would never do anything like that. And actually, you might not do anything exactly like that, but because you're a sinner, you certainly can do something like that. To stay angry is to basically assume that you have some higher nature or something. You must remind yourself you're both sinners, but you also must remind yourself you're both human beings. Remember, Wolf said, you exclude yourself from the community of sinners. That's one way uh, forgiveness flounders. The other is you exclude the, the wrongdoer from the community of humans. And what's that mean? Well, the Bible says we're all made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. And that means there's a richness uh, every human being is a rich, complex being made in the God's image. We don't even know what all that means. If you ever crack open a, uh, a, 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 a theology book and look up image of God, it'll be, a law, it'll be all sorts of things. It's that, oh, my goodness, the fact is that every human being has this and this. We're like God in this way, we're like God in this way. Every human being is this rich, complex uh, being of great dignity and worth. That's not how you feel when someone wrongs you. What you do is you immediately reduce them to what they've done. So, for example, if someone's lied to you, how, what do you think of them? You say, see that person? That person's just a liar. But if you get caught in a lie, you say, well, uh, yes, that was wrong, but it's complicated. <laughs> uh, I mean, I shouldn't have lied. There's no doubt. There's no excuse for it. But I wanted this and I wanted that. Oh, see, you're a multidimensional human being. There's many aspects. There's many perspectives. But that person is just a liar. You're a human being. 
You're a human being, and that person is a cartoon villain. You've excluded that person from the community of humans, and you excluded yourself from the community of sinners. Stop it. Stop it. We do that. You, can, you really can't stop it. You need to see what you're doing. You need to bring yourself down. You need to bring that person up, as it were. You need to say, we are the same. That's the first thing. As we pause to think about God's faithfulness and provision, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. Join us in giving God thanks for all the ways He is faithful and generous to us. And let His grace move you to be merciful and loving to the people in your life. Now, here's Tim Keller for the remainder of today's podcast. The second thing you have to do, and this is the... So the first thing is that you must not caricature uh, the wrongdoer, but you must identify with him or her. The second thing you must do, and this is the heart probably of the practice of forgiveness, is that you have to very, very uh, specifically, you have to inwardly surrender your right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. You must inwardly surrender the right to repayment and pay the debt yourself. The word forgive that Jesus uses in this passage, there are a number of words that could be used, but this word is a very, very specific word that means to to basically release a person from a financial debt. If you've lent a person so many thousand dollars and, and that person owes you and you say, I forgive you, what happens to that thousands of dollars? You eat it. If that person doesn't pay you, you have to absorb it. I know an example I used this morning. Uh, imagine you're a woman and you go to a fancy uh, event and some guest who has drunk too much spills something on your dress and destroys it, ruins it. It can't be fixed. It can't be, you know, clean. And that person says, oh, I see what I've done. I'm so sorry. I want to pay for it. What are you going to do? Now, the problem with this illustration is I don't know what you should do, actually. Uh, uh, it, it probably depends on how expensive the dress was and what your financial situation is and I don't know how. You know, but the point is, if you say, yes, thank you, you can pay for the dress, then you get it. But if you say, no, I forgive you, don't worry about it, don't worry, well, that, what does that mean? You absorb it. That is to say, either you pay for a new dress or you... you you pay by going with one less dress or something like that. The point is that you absorb it, but the debt doesn't just go away. It doesn't go into air. Either you pay it or the other person pays it. So how do you forgive? You can only forgive if inwardly you forego seeking repayment. And the reason we need to... Let me just go a little deeper on this. Is by far the most... Most wrongs are not actually financial wrongs. People have not robbed you usually of money. They rob you of of happiness. They rob you of reputation. They rob you of opportunity. They rob you of, of also, you know, of joy in some way. So what does it mean to make the person rep- to, to pay? And the answer is they made you unhappy. You're going to make them unhappy. They made you uh, hurt. You're going to, you're going to, you want them to be hurt. And so there's three ways to do that. One is directly try to hurt them. You would do things to make their life worse, or you just go and you tell them off and just make them feel bad. The other way to hurt them and to get the repayment is to go to other people and ruin their reputation, gossip about them, you know, criticize them. But the third way and the most basic way is not to do anything outward. Inwardly, inwardly, you root against them. You remind yourself of what they did. And you, you nurture that, you know, you remind yourself and you replay the, the, the videos of it every so often in your mind to stay angry. 
and, when, and you root against them so that every time you hear that something goes wrong in their life, every time you hear that something goes wrong, you go, yeah. And what's happening, every time you hurt them directly or indirectly or even root against them and see that something go, has gone wrong, you feel good because you feel like the debt's being paid and you're being twisted. You are being twisted. See, in the short run, you feel good because it feels like, hey, I'm getting repayment. In the long run, the evil has come into your life and it's going to suck out your joy and it's going to make you a harder person. You're being twisted. Well, what should you do? Uh, Dan Hamilton wrote a little book on forgiveness and basically he goes through those, th- those three same things. He, uh, a, a girl that he was engaged to uh, broke up with him, basically rejected him. He was furious at her and he knew there were all sorts of ways he could make her feel bad. That when he saw her, he could make her feel bad. He could talk her down to other people. Inside, he could think about it all the time. But he realized that if he didn't do that, if every time he had the chance to get repayment, he refused, it would hurt. It would hurt. It would cost. It would bite in. Because all generosity is like that. This is relational generosity. If you really give generously, it's going to hurt. You, you, write out, you, you give enough of your money away that it hurts. That's generosity. And forgiveness if it's really generosity, it hurts. He says, and actually printed in the, on the front page, but you don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it to you. He says, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but in small sums over a year, done whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, done whenever I renounced jealousy and pity when seeing her with another man, done when I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away at her reputation, Those were the payments, but she never saw them. And down at the bottom, she says, pain is the consequence of sin. There's no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. What he says, every time he refrained, every time he refused to get repayment, he was paying it. And it hurt. Why? Because it was generous. But slowly, see, You go after vengeance, you go after repayment, you feel good in the short run, the long run, you're being twisted. But if instead you do these practices of forgiveness, it feels hard, it feels very painful in the long run, freedom. And thirdly, see, somebody's going to say, okay, so you just forgive them, you never confront them, you never talk to them about what they're doing, and the answer is no, 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 not at all, because take a look at what the passage says. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It doesn't say you don't, you know, it doesn't say uh, that you don't tell the person that they've done wrong. It's not loving, by the way, just to let somebody go on and do anything they want. Ah, you say, good. <laughs> Rebuke. I like that word. But you need, to, you need to compare it to the parallel passage in Matthew 18, and then you'll see clearly. If you don't, you won't. Because in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he listens to you, you have your brother back. And now you know what the purpose of the rebuke is. And now you also know why you have to be very careful in reading this verse. Because I've had people say, oh, it says if your brother sins and he repents, forgive him. So if he doesn't repent, I don't have to forgive him. But here, let me just show you something. If you have not inwardly forgiven him before you go and rebuke him, why are you going? What are you going to be doing? To try to get your brother back? To love the person? To wake them up? To help them, you know, see, the, see what they've done wrong to, so they can avoid problems in the future? No. You're going to be going back just to make them feel bad, to get vengeance. 
And I've had many, many people say, I don't want to forgive, I want justice. And I say, if you don't forgive, that when you go to get justice, you won't be getting justice, you'll be getting vengeance. And that person will not respond well, and you'll just have a battle on your hands. And therefore, don't forget this, there's no contradiction. Jesus said, Mark eleven twenty five. If you have anything against anybody, even as you're praying, forgive them. And here it says, don't forgive them until they repent. And it's really saying you inwardly forgive immediately. Then you go and rebuke in order to reconcile. In other words, the third thing is you must will the good of the wrongdoer. You cannot say, I forgive, but I don't want to see them. I forgive, but I want anything to do with them. Because what you're saying is I've refrained overtly from hurting them. But I don't want their good. I don't want them to thrive. I don't want them to flourish, which means you haven't forgiven them. Just because you're not punching them in the nose doesn't mean you haven't, you, you, you've forgiven them. It is so important to realize you must forgive inside before you go rebuking and talking to people. Don Carson wrote this in his book, Love in Hard Places. He says, the line between moral outrage for the sake of God and of truth And the immoral outrage, because I'm on the losing side, the difference between those two kinds of outrage is painfully thin. On the issue, I may be right, but in my heart I may be terribly wrong because I am less motivated by the glory of God and justice, and I'm actually out for personal vindication. Saving face, putting a person in place as revenge, to quote passages on justice to justify the nurtured bitterness of personal injury is for the Christian inexcusable. So watch, watch yourselves. Now, lastly, where do you get, how do I say it, the power to do this? I'll bet you some of you have been listening, and you've been saying, okay, you've actually given me how to, step one, step two, step three, I wrote it down, but I'm still back in verse five. Increase my faith. A lot of you are saying, I feel just like the disciples. Okay, now I know something about it. I know how serious it is. I even have some, but I can't do it. I'm like the disciples. It, I'm incapable. Fortunately for you, Jesus has given you a very full answer because everything after verse 5 is a response to the apostles saying, we don't have the power to do this. And he answers with a parable and a metaphor. First, the parable. And again, we have to, you have to put this in historical context to understand. The parable is, verse 7, suppose one of you, suppose you were the Lord and you had these household servants... You were the master of the house. You had these household servants. And they were plowing or looking after the sheep. At the end of the day, would you say, knock off. You're off duty now. Come and eat. Would you, at the end of the day, thank them and say, oh, thank you. That was so wonderful what you did, taking care of the sheep. Now, Jesus says that would be incongruous, and you know it, he says to his hearers, but you don't know it unless we remember something because we're modern people. These folks, these household servants, are not really slaves in the way you and I think of slavery. These were not people that had been bought and sold and were slaves for life and all that sort of thing. On the other hand, they were not really employees either. In those days, if you fell into debt and you owed more money than you could pay, there was no bankruptcy court, by the way, only two things could happen. One is you could be put in jail. You can actually see that in the, in the parable that Jesus tells on forgiveness in Matthew 18. He'd just be put in jail and rot. And the, the, the person you owe, the creditor, could easily put the debtor in prison, and that's it. You die there. But if there's a little more mercy, you go and you work for the creditor, and you work off your debt. 
And it might be a year, it might be two years. You know, the Bible actually limited it. You, you, you couldn't be an indentured servant for more than seven years. But, but basically, this was your way of being able to work off the debt instead of go to prison. Now, in that case, at the end of the day, you don't knock off. Why? Because you're, you know, you're never off duty until your debt's paid. And also, you would never expect the creditor, the master of the house, to say, thank you so much. You helped me so much because actually, it's the other way around. You're doing only your duty. And by the creditor allowing you to do it, you're going to not go to prison and you're going to be able to get out of debt. And then Jesus, at the very end, changes it around. Notice how he asks the listeners to imagine themselves as the master, saying, wouldn't it be inappropriate for servants to say, just to demand thanks from their masters, especially since they're, the masters are giving them an opportunity to work off their debt. And then at the very end, verse 19, he says, so you also, when you have done everything, suddenly he's, turned it, he's flipped it. When you have done everything you were told to do, including forgive, you should simply say, we're only doing our duty. All right, here's what's going on. One more time in the book of Luke, and it's amazing how often this happens to me. In Luke 7, in Luke 18, we saw this last week, in Luke 15, Jesus takes on the Pharisees. In every case, he depicts a Pharisee, and a Pharisee is a self-righteous religious person. Remember last week we looked at a Pharisee in Luke 18, and he was praying to God, and he was saying, isn't it wonderful, God, that I fast twice a week, and I tithe all my income, and I'm very good, and I obey the Bible? What is, what is the Pharisee doing? He's self-righteous, and here's how he's self-righteous. What he's really saying to God is, God, you should thank me. You owe me. I've been living a good life, so you owe it to me now to bless me. You owe it to me to, obey my, uh, to listen to my prayers. You owe it to me. So one more time, Jesus is actually lifting up the, uh, the self-righteousness of the Pharisee and showing the incongruity of it. And actually, here's what's so incongruous. A self-righteous religious moralistic person, a person who says, because I've lived a good life, God owes me, and people owe me respect, and God owes me you know, blessing and answers to prayer, you are a servant acting like a master. You are a servant acting like a king. Do you see how incongruous it is? But Jesus is telling this parable in response to, the, to this discussion of forgiveness. And so what he's actually saying is, when you refuse to forgive, you are not remembering who you are. You're a servant acting like a king. You owe God everything. He created you. He sustained you. Every minute of the day, every minute, he holds your, your molecules together. You owe him everything. And if you're a Christian, you also know he redeemed you. And therefore, he's the king, you're the servant, and when you turn to someone else and say, I'm not going to forgive that person for what they did to me, what you're doing is you're, you're a servant acting like a king. You're sitting in the judge's seat. You're saying, this person deserves that. How do you know what that person deserves? Are you God? Do you know what they went through? Do you know what has happened in their life? How do you know what they deserve for what they did? And do you have the right? You see, you're a servant acting like a king. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's looking at them, and then he actually goes, he uses the metaphor. And he's, when they say, increase our faith, we don't have the spiritual power. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and he doesn't mean faith in general. He means faith in him. And here's what he's saying. If you had a smidgen of an understanding of what I'd done for you, if you had the slightest understanding of what I'd done for you, 
if you have the slightest, an ounce of understanding that you're a sinner saved by grace, if your self-righteousness, you think that you're saving yourself and God owes you, if you instead have moved over into the gospel, if you understand the gospel at all, you'll be able to forgive. If you have any idea of what I've done, you'll be able to forgive. And you say, well, what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. The only way to get out of the incongruity of servants acting like kings is to see the beauty of the king who became a servant. You'll never be long-suffering until you see him going to the cross to suffer for you. You will never be able to forgive other people their little tiny debts toward you until you see him dying on the cross to pay your great debt. You'll never stop being a judge, putting yourself in the judgment seat, until you see the real judge of all the universe getting out of the judgment seat and coming down and going to court and being condemned and being tortured and killed for you. Here's the judge who didn't stay in his seat but became judged for you. How in the world can you take a judgment seat on anybody else? See, that'll change you. Jesus says if you understand the gospel, just a grain of a mustard seed of the the gospel will be enough to help you forgive. Tippi Hedren, she was an actress, lovely blonde woman who worked for Alfred Hitchcock. And some of you know, if you know anything about Alfred Hitchcock, he had a thing for blondes. And when she was working for him and she was, uh, uh, you know, she was the actress, she starred in his movie, The Birds, uh, he came after her. He wanted her to sleep with him. She refused. He said, if you refuse to sleep with me, I'll ruin your career. And she refused, and he did. Now, she's still alive, and there's been a book out on it. And she was interviewed today in the New York Times magazine. And one of the things they said to her was, you, you know, basically said, well, you must hate him. You know, like, so you didn't go to his funeral. Yes, I did go to his funeral. Well, why would you go to his funeral? It, just to spit on the grave? And she says, you don't get it. He ruined my career. He didn't ruin my life. I appreciate him as a, great, as a great director. Now, I can't imagine hardly anybody I know in New York City saying, he ruined my career, but he didn't ruin my life. <laughs> and I'll tell you the reason is, because in New York, your career is your life. And therefore, if somebody wrongs you there, you'll never be able to forgive them. You'll become a wraith. She was able to forgive and get past her anger, anger because her career wasn't her life. Now, what was her life? I don't know. But unless it's Jesus, you are vulnerable. Only if Jesus becomes your life, only if you get out of the self-righteousness that says, oh, I can earn my salvation, and therefore I have, and therefore God owes me, only when you see I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, then he becomes your life. He becomes your self-worth. He becomes the source of your love. And then there is no place. People can wrong you all sorts of places. It'll be hard. It'll be difficult. But in the end, they can't touch you. You'll be free. Watch yourselves. But even a mustard seed worth of gospel grace can turn you into a person who forgives radically and who lives generously. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a, uh, a marvelous resource. We live in a city where people really can't forgive. We live in a culture where increasingly uh, people defend their self-esteem at all costs and they don't know how to say I was wrong. They don't know how to forgive. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we take up the bread and the cup. Make the death of Jesus Christ so real to us, O Father, 
that we become more and more equipped to love one another, to repent, to forgive, and to become people who image your son, reflect the the beauty of your son um, through all around us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Gospel in Life. In every relationship, God wants us to be generous and forgiving, to reflect the grace He extends to us. Despite our faults, He offers love and forgiveness. As you pause to give thanks today, let Christ's matchless grace fill your heart with hope and gratitude. And thanks again for listening to today's teaching. Happy Thanksgiving!